Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I it felt, felt I this right. I was so and I just felt, well... I figured it out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about habitat loss, an encounter with a man-eating crocodile, and a criminologist struggling with the idea of forgiveness. Our first story this week is from Yvonne Hekela. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Crane Theater as part of the Gotham Storytelling Festival. Years ago, I found myself at uh, an airport in Madagascar, and I was surrounded by several bags of cash and several guards, and I was on my way to go and capture a giant man-eating crocodile. And before I tell you about the crocodile thing, I actually didn't have anything to do with crocodiles before this. I was actually going to study lemurs in Madagascar as a graduate student at Columbia University, and I... Uh, had this great plan that I was going to understand more about the behavior of humans by studying the uh, interactions between species of lemurs because they were early primates. And so I set up on this trek again, uh, across northern Madagascar, and it was this 115, 118-kilometer trek across northern Madagascar, and I was absolutely convinced that I was going to discover this hybrid zone between these two species of lemurs, and that was going to help us understand what was going on with lemurs, or with uh, with uh, social behavior and interactions. And so this was my PhD project at Columbia University. It was this grandiose plan, and I set up on this trek. And uh, as most people know, things don't go as we plan them to. And so I was about, I don't know, two days into this trek with eight guys from Madagascar who spoke Malagasy and one guy who spoke French. And I spoke pretty rickety French. And I uh, fell down a mountainside with a 60-pound backpack. And I uh, tore my meniscus and almost dislocated my hip. But I was like, I'm going to do this. So I just kept going. And, um, and people on the way were telling me, um, well, actually, the lemurs aren't here anymore because uh, we ate them and we can't find them anymore. And it's getting harder and harder to find them. And they were our favorite lemurs because they were the biggest ones. And uh, so, you know, protein is hard to come by. And 
I actually, having met a lot of these Malagasy families on my way, um, you know, families of six would get by on maybe a cup of rice or two a day. And so you couldn't really begrudge them a little bit of protein, even though it made me incredibly sad about the lemurs that I planned to go study. So in the end, I finished the trek with my torn meniscus and my hopes crushed and no lemur samples and a much greater respect and understanding of the people of Madagascar. And I had to come back to my dissertation committee at Columbia University and tell them that I completely failed. I, 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 I did not successfully achieve this goal and I don't know what I'm going to do. And so my committee they were kind of gentle and they actually said, well, we have this bag of samples of uh, blood samples from a hybrid zone uh, that it's not lemurs exactly, it's crocodiles. And would you, would you like to do that for your dissertation instead because you're really running out of time? And I was like, oh, well, um, crocodiles, lemurs, cute, furry, beautiful, glorious lemurs, crocodiles. Uh, and I, I said, well, actually, you know, when I was in Madagascar, I happened to notice that there were all these crocodiles in Madagascar as well. And they have this really interesting relationship with the people there. And plus, I had heard that they were actually kind of unique and might be a separate species, which that could be cool. So I told my committee, I, I would like to do the hybrid crocodiles if maybe I could actually go back to Madagascar and also study the crocodiles in Madagascar, because I'd actually really fall in love, in love with Madagascar. And my committee said, oh, yes, we'll humor you. If you can get back to Madagascar in the next three months and get some samples of Malagasy crocodiles, then sure, that's great. But otherwise, just keep working on these hybrid lemurs, I mean, uh, crocodiles. And I said, uh, okay, great. Uh, so like the next week, I thought, uh, okay, I got to start re researching crocodiles. How am I going to get back to Madagascar? I don't, uh, uh, I have no money. I have no plan. I don't know anything about crocodiles. And I get this phone call at the graduate uh, office at Columbia. And the, the secretary says, there's a phone call from National Geographic for you. And I was like, uh, that's not for me. And like, no, no, it's for you. So I answered the phone. This was landline time. That's why I did that. And, 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 and there's this woman, and she says, hi, I'm with National Geographic Television, and we're doing this um, new program called Out There. And it's to study how, or it's a show about how actual scientists do research. And um, we're working in Madagascar on this other episode and it just so happens that there are these crocodiles that started eating people in the lake beside where we're working. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why are you calling me? And she's like, well, we heard you study crocodiles. And I said, I, oh, really? Yes, I do study crocodiles. And she's like, so can we fly you to Madagascar? And have you come and figure out what's going on with these crocodiles that just started eating people because they were never eating people before, apparently. And, you know, we'll, we'll take care of everything. Don't worry about it. And I was like, hmm, I have like three months to figure out how to get to Madagascar. And yes, I can, I can do that. I, I, I can come to Madagascar. And, and this woman, this producer, she says, 
And actually, um, can you bring us $75,000 because our field crew is out of money and we need someone to resupply them and the banking is not really very effective. And so it'd be great to have someone bring them the cash. And I actually, I'm just going to tell you, I kind of think that they thought that they would, they didn't care about the crocodiles. They just wanted me to bring the money. But (laughs) so anyway, I was like, I I can do that. And then she said, can you do it this Friday? (laughs) And I was like, Yes. It was like three weeks before Christmas. I had no plans. Um, So I found myself uh, sitting at the Chase Bank on the Upper West Side of Manhattan for three and a half hours signing American Express traveler's checks, if anyone remembers those. Uh, You have to, like, sign and then eventually countersign to show that, you know. Anyway, it was $75,000 that had been wired into my bank account, which, by the way, usually the government is a little skeptical about that when you're a graduate student. I had no idea. Uh, Anyway, um, they wanted small denominations, so it was all $20 bills of American Express traveler's checks. (laughs) So I set off, oh, oh, wait, uh, but I should have been spending my time learning how to wrangle crocodiles. So I called a friend of mine who shall remain nameless, and I said, I, I have this gig, and I actually have to uh, handle some crocodiles. And this person said, I, I have some. You can maybe come and handle. And I was like, okay, today? And he's like, okay. So I uh, checked on to where the unnamed crocodiles would be and I found these little crocodiles that I picked up a couple and then I was like I've handled crocodiles um (laughs) yay and um and then on Friday I got on a flight to Madagascar with $75,000 and uh in American Express traveler's checks and as we all know flights to Africa are frequently delayed and as are flights to LaGuardia and to and from LaGuardia, and I live near LaGuardia, so I could say that because it sucks. Sorry. Um, Anyway, so I ended up showing up at the airport in Madagascar after about, I don't know, like 24 hours of flying, and the bank was closing, and I should have said that uh, National Geographic was very explicit that I had to exchange all the money at the bank in the airport because none of the other banks actually would have enough money in their accounts for me to exchange the money. And on top of that, they were like, and we're going to this really remote village in northwestern Madagascar, and they only, like, take money that is, like, in the currency equivalent to, like, 50 cents. And I just want to step back, and we could do a little math here, but $75,000 in American dollars is... Fifteen million nine hundred and something thousand dollars in Malagasy francs, and they wanted small denomination bills. <laughs> and actually, the airport was kind of like, well, we were about to close, but we really like American dollars, and so they stayed open. And that is how I found myself walking out of the airport in Madagascar 
with many, many, many giant bags full of cash and some people that I hired to walk out of the airport with me to a bus to go and take National Geographic the money that they had asked me to bring on my way to capture a man-eating crocodile. (laughs) Wherein I had lots of experience. Uh, So I get to the luxury hotel that National Geographic film crew had been staying in, and they were really happy because I was able to pay their bill. And they said, we're leaving tomorrow morning to go to this remote village, and on the way, we'll tell you what the plan is. I was like, okay. And they said, we should have maybe told you that uh, the government wants to just kill these crocodiles that started attacking people, but the local people believe that these crocodiles are sacred, and these crocodiles are maybe their ancestors, and so maybe we shouldn't mess with the crocodiles. And I was like, okay. And then we get to this village, and let me just tell you that if you think it's fun to have a National Geographic camera like 10 inches from your face for 20 hours a day while you try to interview a community of people about their family members who've been eaten by crocodiles and their children who've been eaten by crocodiles and people who've been drugged into this lake by crocodiles, it's really not all you might think in terms of celebrity status and happiness. It's not a good thing. Um, But um, there are also other complications that happen. So no one told me that this lake, the people who live there believe that you can't have any metal on the lake. And so we had brought these boats so we could do these surveys of the crocodiles to try and figure out what was going on. And uh, they're like, no, you can't, no, no metal can go on this lake. Metal can't touch the lake. That will upset the spirit of the lake. So we spent like 16 hours going to a small fishing village to try and rent these gigantic fiberglass fishing boats from the ocean to bring them back to use for our surveys. That's okay. I can handle that. And then they told me, and you have to buy and sacrifice a zebu, which is kind of a really cute cow, uh, the one with a hump, and they're kind of small in Madagascar. And actually, I might have said, I was a vegetarian at the time. So I was like, okay, I, I guess I can do that in the interest of this. And then they said, and we have to have this thing called a trumba ceremony. And the trumba ceremony where you call up the spirit of the lake to get permission to do the research. And this 100-year-old woman who was quite lovely and spry, in fact, um, she, everyone drinks a lot of palm wine, which if anyone's ever tasted palm wine, is the most disgusting thing you've ever (laughs) tasted in your life. Uh, This woman is inhabited then by the spirit of the lake, which is wonderful, and I you know, had a background, actually, in anthropology, and so I really was enjoying this. But then I found out that the spirit of lake is actually a man. And so I'm dancing with the spirit of the lake, who's embodied by this woman, but then it's a very lecherous spirit of the lake, and it's also being filmed by National Geographic, and it was a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Just going to sit. So all this being said... Uh, we did these surveys of the lake and we tried to figure out what was going on and we um, weren't able to actually capture the supposed man-eating crocodile. 
And we had actually brought in this guy from Kenya who was actually really good at catching crocodiles in case we caught a crocodile. And because there was this plan that maybe we would catch this crocodile on camera and we would take it to the zoo at the capital of Madagascar, Tananarivo, and we would uh, we would actually have a way to, you know, people would be happy because the crocodiles that are sacred to them would be protected and the government would be happy because people weren't being eaten by crocodiles. Great. Well, we didn't catch this crocodile. And so we ended up um, having this big party to say goodbye to the guy from Kenya who was there to catch crocodile and he, we didn't manage to catch crocodile. And the minute he left and I'd had a little bit of Malagasy beer and a little bit of Malagasy palm wine, I get a bunch of people outside my tent going, oh my God, oh my God, we've caught this crocodile. And I'm like, great. <laughs> okay, it's just a little one, right? No, it's a really big one. And so I go with these people and to the shore of the lake, which is about three feet wide, and there is this enormous crocodile on this little tiny rope. And I'm like, that's actually a man-eating crocodile. And it was right where, right where all the other people had actually been attacked by this crocodile. And I'm like, that's the one. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I don't have a crocodile wrangler. And I, at that point, weighed about 104 pounds. And I'm like, very interesting. And in the meantime, the entire village had come to see this captured crocodile, partly because they were like, this is, this is the one, right? This is the one that actually ate people and attacked people and did all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now on top of me being on camera with National Geographic, with lights in my eyes, like these lights in my eyes, I have a giant crocodile, and I have an entire village of like 60 people holding babies and little children, and they're all like, uh, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, actually, you know, as far as I understand, this crocodile represents the spirit of the lake. And so I, I sort of defer to you all. And they're like, well, it's, it's good to see the crocodile, like, up front and personal. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's like 14 feet long, and it's about six feet from me, and I have like 60 people behind me with small children, and there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this crocodile on. You do this thing when you catch crocodiles, which I'd actually learned from the crocodile rango. You pull, and then they roll, and they roll themselves up, and then you jump on them. But usually you need like at least three large humans to jump on them and to kind of know what they're doing to catch them. And so I was thinking, there's no way this is actually going to be successful because not only will I die, but there's lots of people with small babies and they're gonna die too. So I had a little conversation in my head and I was like, you know, I think this crocodile is important to everybody and nobody really wanted it to be killed or removed. They just were pissed off that it had done bad things. So we all decided to like scare the crocodile. 
<laughs> and so everybody on the shore is like yelling at the crocodile. And I'm like, okay, we're going to harass it. And then it's going to decide it's a bad idea to eat people. <laughs> and so, so in front of National Geographic and the entire village, I lean down and I cut this rope and let this crocodile go. And I'm thinking, oh my God, it could actually like now attack us. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and there's babies and tiny like two-year-olds and humans and oh my God. And instead it just flipped its tail and it dove and it got the hell out of there. It was like, <gasps> humans are evil. And I will tell you that I could end it there, but from everything we'd learned from interviewing all these people and talking with them about what had happened, we realized there were some ecological things that they had changed about the relationship of the crocodiles to the community. They'd started using nets on the lake and overfishing, and they had... Um, uh, they had changed the water flow in the lake and some things, but... We worked with them, and we uh, got the Peace Corps to put in some uh, wells, and we put up these barricades to protect people so they could go down and wash themselves at the edge of the lake. And we uh, did some education with some local communities. We got a small crocodile, and we let kids touch it and pet it and understand, like, this is the natural history of crocodiles. And for 10 years, after we did all these things no one was attacked by a crocodile. And, and all I can say is, you know, if you see the episode of National Geographic called Maneaters of Madagascar, and you see me looking cranky and sweaty and tired and pissed off, I really, really was. But I'm also really glad I actually said yes when I answered the phone. That was Yvonne Hekela. Yvonne spends her time teaching and researching at Fordham University and the American Museum of Natural History, where she and her students explore a century of change in the wild world of animals. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. As you might remember from science class, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up your DNA. Well, that's where 23andMe.com, a genetic testing service, gets its name. 23andMe allows you to have access to information about your DNA. You can find out how your genes may influence your health, your ancestry, and even physical traits with over 65 online genetic reports personalized to you. So, how does 23andMe work? You simply purchase a kit on their website, 23andMe.com. When the test arrives at your home, you provide a saliva sample by spitting into a tube, the best part, and then you send it back. Once your DNA has been analyzed, you'll get to learn more about what makes you, you. We are all genetically 99.5% the same. Wouldn't you like to know more about what's in that last 0.5% that makes you unique? With 23andMe, you can. To order your kit today, visit 23andme.com slash collider. That's the number 23andme.com slash collider. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Stan Stoikovic, 
It was recorded in November 2016 at the Hilton New Orleans Riverside in New Orleans, Louisiana. The theme was criminology. The show was produced in partnership with Springer Nature's Before the Abstract podcast, which you can find at beforetheabstract.com. Uh, I want to offer a disclaimer before I start. Uh, I'm not Dr. Phil. Okay? So for those who... I get asked about ten times a day, am I Dr. Phil? And I always say, I'm smarter, but he's a lot richer. So we'll just go forward with that, that disclaimer. Uh, my story is really a story about redemption and the opportunity for redemption and something that really uh, most people in the criminal justice system, whether they're studying the system or they're studying criminology or they're working with individuals in the system, don't really have any sense of. And so my story is really about this. And it really begins with a, a man named Andre. Uh, Andre's a prisoner who is in a uh, Wisconsin prison for a double homicide that I'll talk about a little bit later. But Andre uh, killed his uh, victims when he was 15. And there's particular things about Andre that made him so unique because I get literally hundreds of letters from uh, prisoners every year. I work with the California Department of Corrections. I'm working with them now. I've been all over the world really looking at issues of correctional, how do you run correctional institutions and what are the management kinds of issues and the implications. And so when I get letters from prisoners, they're pretty common. And they usually are along two dimensions. One dimension is, you know, my prison is a terrible place. It's horrible. It's awful, blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't be here. Uh, can you help me? Uh, or they give me a second type, of, which is I need legal advice. And I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I mean, I can't help them. I can't, I can't really give them the kind of advice that they need. But Andre's letter sticks out. You know, most of these letters you get, and you can tell that they come from a correctional institution because they got their number and they got their name, and, and you know that's coming from a prison. And you start, you know, okay, I'll read this letter. Well, this guy's letter was like about 15 pages. That's unusual. Most of my letters are cryptic. They're written, handwritten. They may be a page or two. But his letter is really so profound. And I'm reading this, and I'm really enamored Wow, who is this guy? This guy writes better than most of the students I have. And how, how is it that he writes so well? Right? And so I get intrigued with this letter. And basically his letter is about, and he has a whole plan for redemption. And not only his own personal redemption, but the idea of redemption as a correctional goal. He wants to take it there, and I'll get to that uh, in a few moments. So I'm, a, I'm sort of intrigued with this. And I decide that I'm going to read his plan. He has a redemption plan. So I read this plan, and I send off a letter to him. And I basically say, listen, uh, you have a lot of hope. What I hear in your voice through this letter uh, is hope. Uh, but you know, when I think about hope, I always say to students, hope is not a methodology. Okay? You can't hope two variables together. Right? You have to have a plan. Okay? And so I always say to people, you know, okay, I'm going I'm to tell Andre the same thing. And, and that began our story which started November 11th, uh, 2011, with me receiving his first letter. And as he started to write about me, he wasn't asking for anything in particular. He wanted me to be aware. So I, I inquired you know, in one of my letters, well, how did you find out about me? Well, what he had done was the prison apparently had taped these public broadcasting shows that are in Wisconsin, and they go across the state. And there was one in Milwaukee about incarceration. And they had a bunch of keynote speakers, and I was one of them. And they were talking about, all right, how do we make prisons better? How do we make the correctional system better? What are the kinds of things that we need to do to sort of improve the system? Well, he had seen one of these tapes. And so it was in the prison library, and he writes, you know, all the details about how he got the, the, the tape. And so writing for him, very cathartic, right? He had an opportunity to interact with someone who was going to interact back. Because most you know, these inmates that send letters to people, they, they don't get heard from. 
They get thrown in a circular file, nothing really happens to them. But he starts to tell me about his story and his life through these letters. And you read these letters and you think, wow, I've been working correctional systems and evaluating them and working with people in the system and doing research and writing about it for over four decades. So I have a sense of what he's gonna say. And what he has to say though is really poignant about his story and his story and how he got to prison. And so that story really is what you would expect. Born in the inner city of Milwaukee, uh, father he never knew, mother sexually assaulting and physically assaulting him routinely, he and his brothers, right? Growing up on the street, this is not necessarily unusual. A lot of people have this experience, unfortunately, right? Winds up going to a party, he's 15 years old. At that party, he gets drunk, he gets high, he's on crack. This is in the early 90s when crack was still around and crack really hit Milwaukee later than the East Coast went across the country. He winds up executing two 15-year-olds, his age. He had him bend down, took a gun, and shot him in the head, both of them. A young girl and a young boy killed him. Shortly thereafter, he's arrested. He admits to it. He admits that he had, had done it. There is no factual dispute in his case. Was he the bad guy, right? He had done it, right? And he went to prison. He got waived from a juvenile court to adult court at 15, tried on a double homicide, and gets a maximum sentence. But he's sentenced under the old sentencing laws in the 1990s, which gave people the opportunity for parole. But his first parole hearing is until 2037. That's his first hearing, okay? So he's writing me and telling me about this. So I'm thinking, what, what, is, what does he really want out of me? And we went around back and forth for about a year with the letters, right? and just asking questions about this, but he doesn't really ask me for anything. He doesn't ask me, that. can you help me get out of prison? He doesn't really say that. But he tells me about ways that he's trying to really improve himself in a prison. The big message is, I did everything. I took all the courses, I took everything from metal shop to writing courses to college courses. Even though Pell Grants weren't available to prisoners, they were not allowed under law. Uh, he couldn't, the prison could give him certain types of things, but he did everything. He did everything they asked him. He didn't have a disciplinary problem. Very well respected, all right? But he was stuck, right? He wasn't gonna get his first hearing until 2037. So I asked him, well, what, how do you feel about this? He's, well, I don't think it's fair, but at the end of the day, I have to show that I'm redeemed. I will owe the city of Milwaukee forever for what I did. I will owe my victims' families forever for what I did. I will never not own that. That will always be part of my redemption plan. And so I believe that you have to earn redemption. You don't just get it. It'd be nice if everybody just forgave people <laughs> on their own merit. But that's not reality, right? Especially a guy who commits a double homicide, execution style, brutal murders, right? So his story to me is, this is what I'm trying to do, is to redeem myself. And what really runs through his letters is hope. And so I start to think, how does a guy have so much hope when there is so little room for hope? How does he do this? So I inquire about that with him. Tell me about more about yourself. Tell me more about your story. This is a fascinating story that I really want to know. In the meantime, a lawyer gets a hold of me. And he's a law professor, actually, up at UW-Madison in the law school. He says, I hear you've been conversing with my client. I figure he's going to say, you know, cease and desist. Don't do this anymore. I said, no, I, I, I'm talking with him. Yeah. So then I get him on the phone. Now, you got to remember, I've never seen Andre to this day. 
he was sitting in this room, I don't know who he was. I assume he's African-American, but I could be false. I don't know what he looks like. Do I plan ever to go see him? Yes, but not yet, all right? So I started talking to this lawyer, and this lawyer is part of a group in the Madison Law School that's really helping indigent clients, people who are in prison who are seeking appeal. They're all appellate issues. And they're having the law students basically work with these inmates. And Andre is one of these inmates. And so he becomes one of their clients, so to speak. Right? And here's what he wants. But he doesn't tell me this. The lawyer tells me this. All right? The, the law professor. Andre wants a pre-hearing to his first hearing. Now remember what I said a few moments ago. His first hearing is 2037. So he can have under law, under the old law, a pre-hearing, which really determines his eligibility for the hearing. Right? And that's all he wants. He wants that pre-hearing because he figures he can convince people he's done everything and that they should let him out or at least give him an opportunity to get parole, right? So I said to him, well, this story can't end, right? Not now what he's done indirectly. And then I met his wife. He got married inside. I met his wife, and we talked on the phone about his situation and what was happening with him. And I always say to her, how does this guy stay so hopeful? Well, she said he has nothing else. There's nothing else for him, right? Everything else is negative. And negative, he understands, is just a bad thing. It's not going to take you anywhere. So I said, well, are you guys still working on this case? Yeah, we're going to try to develop an appeal for him so that at least he can get this pre-hearing. So then I come up with the, the brilliant idea, which is, uh, how about if I talk to the district attorney that prosecuted you? The office, right? Now, the district attorney that did prosecute him has since retired, and I knew him too, and he had been district attorney for 40 years in the county. But I knew the new district attorney who was very, very... Uh, Smart, uh, very, very enlightened, a guy who wanted to try new things. He believed in science. He believed in these types of things. And I really was able to segue to him with Andre, because Andre was sending me all these articles about neuroscience and brain development and how a, a kid's brain, you know, at 13, 14, 15, wasn't an adult's brain. And that he believed, you know, in his youth, and of course he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, that ultimately he could maybe get an appeal. Well, the Supreme Court at that point in time had recently said you can no longer execute juveniles. So there was a whole issue going on. Could he get an appeal based on a neuroscience? And his understanding of neuroscience was unbelievable. And again, these lengthy kinds of letters. So I figured, well, that's my in with the district attorney is to talk about, let's see if we can do something with this. So I have lunch with him, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. All he knows is that Stan and I are going out to lunch, and Stan's a good guy, and I'm a good guy, and we're going to have a great lunch. And so we sit down by the Lake Lake Michigan, and we're in a nice little restaurant, and we start you know, talking about general things and what's happening in the city. And I finally say to him, I have a request, anything you want. Well, wait a minute. You know, as an attorney, a district attorney, you probably don't want to say that. Because what I'm going to ask you is pretty, uh, pretty extreme. Tell me what you want. I said, well, there's, I explained the case to him. He says, Stan, well, what do you want out of this? I said, I don't want anything. I want you to consider to think about the sanction, the criminal sanction, in a different way. That's really what I want you to do. I want you to really think about this. He said, listen, I'll give you this. I'm going to go dig this file out. The murder occurred in 1995. Here it was about 2013, 2014. So it's a 20-year-old case just about. Well, you lawyers know, right, what happens to evidence after 20 years, right? Witnesses die, they leave, they move. Uh, evidence is lost and, you know, wherever they place the evidence. But he decides he's going to get the investigator lead investigator, who's retired, Milwaukee police detective, and he's going to try to find the families. Well, he can't find the families. They, they've dispersed. 
remember, his family home was really pretty fractured and shattered anyway. So they, they couldn't find these people. There was nowhere to find them. But he did talk to a lead investigator who remembered the case because of the brutality associated with the case. That this was such a brutal murder. This wasn't a drive-by, which is bad enough. This was an execution-style murder. So he comes in about a month later, and he says, Stan, we got to have lunch. I want to talk to you about this case. Okay. So we go have lunch. I said, listen, I can't, I can't wait. Tell me what you're going to do. I'm not going to advocate for his, his pre-hearing. Not his hearing. Remember, that doesn't happen until 2037, presumably. I'm not going to advocate. I said, you won't even write a letter saying that, no. Tell me why. What is it about this particular case? He said, this is a double homicide. This is an execution. I would be executed by the public, because I'm an elected official, if I started to advocate for someone. So I said to him, I said, John, when is it enough? Can you answer that question for me? Can you tell me when it is enough how much time is enough? He's done now 21 years. He's 36, 37 years old. He's done everything that the prison said, right, and required, even by the warden and the other inmates. I mean, this guy's a model prisoner, and I know all the correctional people because of the work that I've done with them. When is this enough? How, how much, and, and, and when, when you know that, how do you know that? All of a sudden, is it 30 years? Is it 40 years? Is it the rest of his life? What is it? Right, and he said, well, I don't have an answer to that. And my position was, nobody does, right? Nobody has an answer to that question in, within the realm of our understanding of the criminal sanction now. Because what have we done in the last 30 to 40 years? Heavily retributive, lock away people, throw away the key. Now, this guy, you could argue, I think, legitimately, if you were a tributist, right? If anybody deserves to go to prison for life, this guy does, right? But is there any room for redemption? And his redemption plan is rooted in what he believes to be the best science available. That it's not only, you know, uh, yes, I'm accountable. And like he said, I'm accountable to the day I die. I owe the city, I owe the families, to the day I die. I, that's going to be with me. And I have to do that. Well, I write Andre back and I tell him, Andre, this didn't happen. You know, it just, it's not going to happen. The district attorney's not going to do it. He said, okay. He said, we'll find something else. <laughs> right? We'll do something else. And so, you know, hope springs eternal, right? But his redemption plan is a redemption plan. He knows about risk, responsivity, need. He knows those principles. And he, he points out to me in a very fascinating article, which he said, you know, at a time when they were locking up all these people, the science was getting a lot better. They were like countervailing trends, right? Sort of ironic. At a time when all these people were going to prison, we were learning more about what seems to work with what kind of offender based on these principles. And he knows them. Right? Andre is just sort of symptomatic of larger issues that occur, it seems to me, in the correctional system. There are a million Andres, right? And so what I said to him was, if we can listen to a guy like this, and, and I've dealt with a lot of prisons, a lot of prisoners over many years, right? And you hear all sorts of stories about all sorts of things. But if you come to a point where you say, how do we rethink this thing called the criminal sanction? And what is it that we're really trying to accomplish within that criminal sanction? If we punish simply because we can, aren't we just cruel? Right? When you start to think about these things. So my last letter to him was about four months ago, in which he said to me, you know, 
I'm thinking about doing some other kinds of things that maybe I can get transferred to another prison. So I said, call him back. Why? Why do you want to go to another prison? I want to go to another prison because I think the warden's probably a better place there. And I got pretty much carte blanche. I said, well, it sounds like you got a pretty good life in prison. He says, you know, and that's my fear. Right? Prison really does nothing for me anymore. If anything, it's destructive toward me. I really get no benefit out of prison. So I took that. I thought, all of us are really minimized under that approach, aren't we? Aren't we all sort of not only responsible, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, are we our brother's keeper? Right? And what does the you know, deserving, undeserving, I should say, deserve, right? It's a question we've always posed. But until we change the way we understand the sanction, right, we will have a dearth of choices, limited options, and I, I've always thought to myself, this guy did more to educate me than I ever educated him. Why? Because he lived it, and he lives it right now. Now, do I think that Andre's going to get out of prison in the near future? Probably not. Do I think he's even going to get that pre-hearing? Probably not. Wisconsin is infamous, even on those people who are eligible for parole under the old law, right? Uh, nobody gets out. That's just a message from the governor's office. Nobody gets out. So at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, how have we imprisoned our own selves in our thinking about criminals? And if we can think, finally, about people like Andre, what does that say about other offenders who may not have committed even those serious types of crimes? If we can come to a point where redemption seems to make sense, to people who committed the most heinous crimes, can we think about those things in the context of other kinds of crimes, less serious crimes? That's Andre's message, and I hope to continue that story as we go forward. Thank you very much. That was Stan Skoykovic. Stan is Dean and Professor of Criminal Justice at the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he has been a faculty member for the past 33 years. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings and helps new listeners find the podcast. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Crane Theater and the Hilton New Orleans Riverside for hosting these shows, and to Forgiveness, whether it's for convicts or crocodiles. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. Find out what your DNA says about you based on the science behind your 23 pairs of chromosomes. Order your kit today at 23andMe.com collider. That's the number 23andme.com collider.